Hello and welcome to another episode of Building Better Systems. My name is Shpat Morena. And I'm Joey Dodds. Joey and I work at Gawa. Gawa is a computer science R&D lab focused on uh, hard problems, trust, cybersecurity, and a lot of other fun stuff. Today we're joined by Nick Swamy, who is Senior Principal Researcher in the RISE Group at Microsoft Research. This is kind of an exciting one for me because uh, back when I was in grad school, Nick came in and visited, and uh, it was really inspiring to see somebody doing industrial research uh, like Nick was. So very excited to be uh, very excited to be talking with him today and to hear a bit about what he's been working on. Uh, in particular, uh, we're going to talk about a bit about his background, uh, and then we're going to discuss a language that he's co-created and continually developed uh, called F-Star. F-Star is a dependently typed language that you can use to both program and prove things about the programs that you write. Uh, we'll talk about what makes that language uh, special and unique from other similar languages, as well as some of the applications of F-Star. Designing, manufacturing, installing, and maintaining the high-speed electronic computer, the largest and most complex computers ever built. Thanks for joining us, Nick. Yeah, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. So before we dive into what you've what you're working on now, I'd love to hear a little bit about your your background and how you got interested in the field of programming languages. That's a good question. Um, so my background broadly is I um, I grew up in India and I uh, came to the U.S. Uh, as as an undergrad and. I went to a, a, a school called Hampshire College in, in Massachusetts, which is kind of a, a liberal arts school, no grades, make your own major kind of place. Uh, it's a lot of fun. Um, and I, the school is very kind of oriented towards, uh, you know, self-directed study in some sense. And um, I, I found a couple of great professors there who were interested in, um, who got me interested in, in computing and um physics and math and things like this. And I, I worked with them on, this was like in the late 90s, I was working with them on uh, quantum computing and um, applying sort of search algorithms to find better than classical quantum programs, uh, which, um, and then trying to prove that the programs that we, we actually found were, were correct and solved whatever problem we were trying to solve. Like, you know, that if it's a circuit to solve something that it was actually solving it with some, you know, finding the right answer with some prob correct probability, this kind of stuff. So that's when I kind of really got into or understood that, hey, it's actually interesting to try to prove stuff about programs. And I learned a bunch at that time about, you know, automated theorem proving techniques. And well, actually, I thought I learned a bunch, but actually I learned surprisingly little. And, you know, then learned that, wow, I actually hadn't learned, like, there's so much more. And, and you know, I went to grad school at, at Maryland and um, thinking about, like, well, you know, initially thinking about, like, hey, I, I might try to do some things, like, uh, in the AI space. But I, I then kind of had a, mo you know, some sort of moment, I guess, in grad schools as that you do sometimes where I realized that, like, hey, you know, being able to prove properties about programs is a really was a really like powerful idea for me, and I worked with Mike Hicks, my advisor at, at the University of Maryland, on a programming language called Cyclone. Um, Cyclone is um, so it's like a, a a 
C-like programming language with um, a type system geared towards proving memory safety and uh, with ideas in Cyclone that, you know, were maybe somewhat a bit ahead of its time in some sense. Things like, you know, linear types and, um, you know, uh, being able to use sort of custom memory management strategies, everything from unique pointers to reference counting to, you know, even in some cases, conservative GC. Lots of ideas from Cyclone sort of and region-based memory management and so on. So I think, you know, now maybe find a home in languages like Rust. Um, and uh, I learned a lot at that time from from Mike and the other people working on, like, on Cyclone about programming languages and, and type systems and uh, being able to prove things about programs before you run them. And yeah, that, that's how I got into this stuff. And then I, uh, for my thesis, I was more, you know, building on what I'd learned about Learned in Cyclone, I um, I started to explore some ideas in, in dependent types and see how, you know, can you add, you know, just a little bit of dependent types to a programming language and get it to prove properties that, you know, prove, I was at the time interested in security properties. I still am. Um, you know, how can you get away with adding just a little bit of dependent types and, and you know, and be able to prove, I don't know, things like the correctness of access control enforcement or information flow control policies, th- things like this. Um, and if we if we don't have anyone that's familiar, could you give us a super quick glimpse? Because I think it's going to come up again in, in this conversation. What is a dependent type? Right. So so you know, uh, a, it's a, it's a kind of a profound question in some ways. <laughs> yeah. But but uh, but in, in a in a simple sense, it's uh, you know, it's it's a way to kind of. Uh, um, Encode a logic in the type system of a programming language, and uh, the word dependent maybe you know maybe it's a little bit scary, but it's actually a really simple thing. It's like you can have a function whose uh, you know uh, usually a, a function if you give it a type signature, uh, it's a function that takes an integer and returns an integer. Let's say that's a common. It's like a simple type for a function, but you can have functions that that are you know whose return type can depend on the argument. And it can do things like, you know, if you call it with um, uh, the integer 17, then it returns, you know, uh, I don't know, a vector whose uh, whose length is 17. Or you could even be things like, hey, you know, you call it with a uh, uh, with a boolean. And if it's if you call it with true, it returns a string. And if you call it with false, it returns, you know, I don't know, a uh, an integer, let's say. You know, so it's the so that's where the word I think dependent comes from. But this this mechanism, which you, you know you can kind of think of as like the way the examples I gave you are very kind of programmers programming centric. You know, but this basic mechanism allows you in in a very kind of foundational way to encode within the type system. You know, uh, very powerful logics that let you you know uh, build all of mathematics in some sense in, inside inside this logic, which doubles as a programming language. Now, dependent types, because they're this very powerful thing, they, you know, they, you don't see them that often in mainstream programming languages. You're beginning to, uh, and, but they, you know, the kind of languages that me and my colleagues work on, you know, there's, I'm sure we'll get into more of them, but, the, you know, they're, they're fairly, I don't know, they're pretty fancy, I mean, uh, to, to put it bluntly. So I was trying in my in my thesis work to sort of see, well, you know, I don't want full dependent types. What can I, you know, can I just inject a tiny bit of dependent types into my language? And, you know, how much mileage can I extract from that? Like, you know, 
what kinds of things can I prove if I get you know dependent types light? And then you know then I and then I guess it's you know I don't know 10, 15 years later uh, I'm I'm no longer doing dependent types light. It's kind of you know the the yeah, it's like the the uh, heavy like, dependent types. Yeah, the the entry the, the gateway drug or something. You know you, you start doing it a little bit and then you know after a while you're like you're fully in bed with dependent types and, <laughs> and it's all you know um fully in bed with dependent types i think we got our title for the podcast <laughs> cool and so now you're at um microsoft research and have been for a while and you've been working on yeah uh, increasingly uh more dependent types i guess in, in a language called yeah. f star that's right yeah yeah i've been at uh, microsoft research since about 2008 and i, I worked there at a group called uh Rise research in software engineering, um, and um, I work on yeah F star, um, but uh, broadly on on you know programming language techniques, programming language and program verification techniques to to prove um, to prove programs correct, prove, to prove them secure, uh, to prove you know things like resource bounds on uh, about them, things things like this, proving things about programs. Through program language design, yeah, um, through programming language design, where you know, in these new programming languages, to sort of the languages facilitate writing programs and their proofs together, uh, is to you know make it make it possible and maybe easier to actually write programs uh, that are correct. A lot, a lot of this work from from where you started to the work in Microsoft sounds like part of it has maybe culminated is the wrong word, but it has led to this language that you're working on, which is F star. Um, I wonder if it would be a good place to start to, for you to tell us a little bit about it. Yeah, sure. So, so F star is this programming language. It looks like, um, uh, superficially, it looks like uh, a, you know, uh, many other functional programming languages, things like uh, languages in the, in the ML family, things like OCaml or F sharp or even Haskell to a certain extent. So, which is to say that it's a a uh, mostly functional, uh, statically typed language. Where it, you know, what's maybe unique about it is that it's um, it it uh, it has you know I'd say like three maybe unique features. The first is that it's dependently typed, uh, meaning that uh, the the type system is is more powerful than these other languages that I've mentioned so far. Things like uh, OCaml, uh, F Sharp, and so on. It has a, a type system that is, uh, you know, it's got full dependent types similar to other languages that you may have heard of, things like um, like Lean or Coq or Agda, or, you know, other dependently typed languages. Uh, but it is different from the, the dependent types that you see in these other languages in that uh, F-star is based on an extensional type theory, which is slightly, technically, we can talk about that at some point if you want, uh, different than... Um, than the, the type theories that are implemented by these other languages that I mentioned. I think this extensionality thing is, is kind of important because it enables, you know, making F star sort of a programming first kind of language rather than a, a language in which you say may, maybe, you know, some of these other, other languages there kind of set up as, you know, a proof assistance in which you can do you know, sort of, you know, mathematics at a, at a very you know, deep abstract level. Um, F star is more kind of, Programmer centric, where you're not, you wouldn't, you wouldn't necessarily fire up an F star session to, I don't know, uh, formalize category theory or something. I mean, you can if you want, but that's not what people use it for. 
it's more like you, you know uh, the you use it to to write uh, for, for building programs that you want to execute. And this uh, in doing that, like if, as you're writing programs and you're writing sort of software, it turns out you know as probably you're both aware, like when you're writing a piece of software, you you're not you're not you, there are typically and you want to prove it correct. There there's maybe a handful of interesting theorems that you want to prove. But the bulk of the things that you're trying to prove are really, really tedious, low-level, you know, tons of you're mired in details, hundreds, thousands of small proofs that help towards maybe maybe you have some interesting insight about a about a big invariant and like you know there's there's a handful of, of big proofs. So um, one thing that Fstar really aims to do is to try to reduce the overhead of the human overhead of having to build, write these thousands of small proofs all over the place. And the way that it does this is by using, and this is kind of the, 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 the one of the unique things about FSTAR, is by using an SMT solver. An SMT solver is an automated theorem prover that if you, you know, you feed it a problem in some logic, and it's usually some, you know, things like first order logic plus some reasoning capabilities about arithmetic, things like this. You, you feed it to the SMT solver and the SMT solver can try to find, uh, decide whether a particular formula is valid or not. So what FSTAR does is that it's, it analyzes your program in this, in its dependently type logic, produces these, you know, hundreds, a large number of proof obligations that pop up when you're trying to verify even, you know, ten lines of code, and feeds that to uh, this SMT solver, which which tries to uh, do the proof for you. Now, I, I mentioned at the beginning that extensionality was really important here, and one of the reasons is that the particular flavor of type theory that FSTAR uses is designed in a way to enable this kind of you know, dispatching proofs to an external uh, theorem prover that can, you know, implicitly prove many properties about your program while you're writing them. So that's that's kind of so dependent types and and SMT solving. That's kind of two two important things about FSTAR. The third thing is that um, you know when I, I I want to me and others want to write software in FSTAR that uh, that is efficient and you know is is uh, you know can be low level software that's that's doing I don't know. Um, Things like efficient network communication or cryptography, or you know things like this. So this kind of software is, in in many ways, inherently effectful or imperative in a sense. You know, although I said at the beginning that FSTAR is sort of a functional. mostly functional language, the way in which we use FSTAR is by encoding within the functional language other sub languages that ex that are allow you to have allow you to reason about computational effects. You know things that you're, you're, you're mutable state or you know um, raising exceptions or doing IO or things like this. You can reason about that. You can write programs that do these things in FSTAR and reason about them within FSTAR. And so FSTAR has this effect system, and that's the, I think this the other unique thing about FSTAR that it's dependent types, SMT solving, and effects. And um, that that package together is uh, you know we use it to um, yeah to build. Um, uh, a variety of things uh, in the in the in the kind of domains that I've mentioned. Uh, the, you know, uh, um, like a focus for us recently has been um, low-level secure communication software. That's ranging from um, yeah, yeah things like cryptographic protocols to to say a network packet parsing um, things like this uh, that that we 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 implement an FSTAR proof correct and then. Uh, uh, execute as, you know, uh, you can get out of FSTAR, you can get C code or assembly code or whatever, depending on which of which of these fragments of FSTAR you program in, you uh, 
how you get out this imperative low-level software that you can then deploy and, and run. So it's it's in somewhat active use for real things, it sounds like. Um, and then I, my question, if that's somewhat correct. Um, well, it's, a, it, you know, it's, I, I, I'd say there's, there's a small community of active users mm-hmm. okay. at, who, are, um, who are, you know, uh, my, my colleagues at, at MSR, we use, several of us use FSTAR to do mm-hmm. things with it. Like, you know, what, something that we've done recently is, uh, I don't know, uh, we've, uh, uh, we, there's an FSTAR sub-language uh, for, specifically that's uh, for writing low-level parsers correctly, uh, parsers of things like network message formats. So we have a, a, a verified parser generator that we've implemented inside FSTAR. And we, is this the is this EverParse? This is called EverParse. That's right. Yeah. So you know we use this to to build uh, the network f- uh, packet formats used in various parts of the uh, the Windows kernel, and uh, we extract you know uh, high performance C code for uh, parsing those packets. And for the last maybe eighteen months or so, we've had. Uh, our verified parsers produced by FSTAR, you know, running inside Hyper-V, inside the Windows kernel, in, in several Amazing. releases of Windows so far. Yeah. So, so there are pockets of, of such, you know, com- people who, even outside MSR, there's some people who, who use FSTAR to deploy verified cryptography in the Linux kernel or in Firefox, and, you know, so th- there's use. Well, so... I have a couple of questions about that, which is, that's awesome. Um, you, at a higher level than just have, so, so, so first of all, you know, when we're talking about dependent types, you said they don't end up in, in programming languages that are more generic or more, more used because they're a little complicated is my simplified version of what you said. Um, but it sounds like, uh, you've made this language suitable for programming, you know, in the large. Um, and yet, you know, designed sort of dependent type theory into it. Um, how'd you, th- how'd you make that happen? And is, is, is it the case that this is more approachable? I mean, I think there's still a long ways to go. I'd, I'd like to think that s- at least some of what we do in FSTAR makes dependent types more approachable, uh, to certain kinds of people. Um, you know, it's still, like I said, a very small community of people who, who are, who are using this stuff, but I think. I'm optimistic. I think we're, you know, uh, we're on a trajectory where, as we see more successes a- across the the several dependent type languages that we have out there today, and as you see, you know, uh, uh, students coming out of universities around the world, like get, gaining more experience with this with this kind of stuff, uh, where, you know, um, if I even if I if just from a personal experience, like if I if I think about the interns that I had when I joined MSR and uh, uh, 2008 you know super smart students but you know at the time programming like this in a dependently type language was like the bleeding edge like not everybody had experience with it and but today the interns that you get like everyone has has done many of them have done you know some part of software foundations or they you know uh, programmed in Coq or Agda or something and it's it's not it doesn't feel alien to, to, to people, many people anymore. It's just like, okay, I, I just, I can just hack my way through this proof. No problem. And uh, so I think the, the community of, of, of people who are, who have a, a you know, uh, a certain kind of baseline skill 
to approach these 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 things that were previously quite esoteric is uh, you know that that community is growing and growing i think quite fast so i i hope that you know um in a in a few years like languages like star or lean or you know so many others um will will no longer be as um, esoteric as esoteric yeah it's a great word for for, for it well, it's a it's a really important perspective because sometimes when we look at these things today, it's still it's it's a small community, right? By by most metrics of programming language communities, um, there is kind of hope because yeah, if you look if you look ten years ago, um, dependent type was like yeah, it was kind of felt new, um, and now it's yeah now now you now you have a talent pool to draw from, and there's no reason that growth. Um, that growth should slow down. So that is a really important perspective to say like, yeah, it's not, it's not huge yet, but we've made, we've made progress. Um, things like F star and, and cock. And I think lean is bringing a whole new, um, a whole new group of people sort of into the, into the, um, dependent type sort of world. And, and yeah, it's, it's really, it's really exciting to see that growth and definitely important to acknowledge all the, the progress that's been made in the last 10, 15 years. Yeah. I think that maybe the answer to, to me, one, one way in which I see sort of, more growth happening is, uh, and you know, and maybe as a, as a kind of a, uh, as a functional programmer, this is not that surprising. But I, I really see like the domain-specific languages is a big part of the answer. That you know, you have these frameworks that are super powerful. You can formalize all of mathematics in them if you want. But most people don't want to formalize all of mathematics. They want to do some very specific thing. You know, like I don't know, writing uh, in in our case, for instance, that what, taking EverParse again was. You know, I'm not going to unleash the full power of dependent types on for someone who just wants to write a packet parser. You know, I'll design some some framework within my uh, you know some language within my very powerful framework that's tailored towards this very specific usage, where uh, you know you kind of uh, that that sort of reigns in the complexity and 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 makes the allows a person to get value from it without having to understand all of it. I'm laughing a little because you, you sort of mentioned that, and I think uh, I think Leo had this experience where maybe he thought the same, but then the entire math world sort of showed up at his door and said, "We want to formalize all of mathematics with dependent types." No, that, that's uh, true. That's true. <laughs> but that's yeah, that, yeah. Fair, fair enough. Uh, yes. But um, yeah, um, certainly not everybody wants to do that, and the, the uses seem to be fairly different. So yeah, I mean, I guess I guess on a on a related question, you know, since since we're mentioning lean, um, and I and I think maybe this gets back to the extensional. Um, intentional kind of thing, but you know, we did talk to to Leo a while back, and one of the things I've sort of been wondering about since we talked with him is like Leo obviously understands SMT solvers very well and and knows what they can do. From the sounds of it, he started out trying to write something that could make use of SMT solvers and that could let you get more work done before the SMT solvers do their thing. Um, but he ended up in a in a world where like Lean doesn't speak to SMT solvers um, very well or at all at the moment, and is is that sort of the extensional intentional um, distinction there, or did some did something else happen in your opinion to sort of cause him to to move away from that? I think you could make this the the, the SMT thing work inside an intentional type theory in certain in certain ways, and you know it, you know um, and I I think. Within Lean too, it it could think it could well happen. I I talked to Leo a lot. Uh, you know, we um, he's taught me a ton about both SMT solvers and and type theories. Uh, he was saying the same. He was saying the same about you. 
uh, he's he's being kind. Uh, it's definitely the other way. But uh, uh, I, yeah, I think. I mean, if I was if I was to guess, I mean, I, I'd say, you know, some, we may still someday have a SMT solver inside Lean. I think it's it's just that Lean has has really taken off in this math community where the priorities have been to you know uh, to to serve the needs of you know to, to meet and serve the needs of that community and maybe the SMT solvers are uh, are not have not made it to the top of the priority list yet but they may, I, I expect someday they will but the, the kinds of things that you know uh, uh, and and other and people have built SMT assisted uh, proof automation in in other frameworks from you know there are some in Isabel notably which is not dependent attack theory dependent attack theory but you know, SMT solvers work very well there, um, but also there's some some uh, some work in Coq doing things like this. But the thing in FSTAR that makes it different than, say, Lean or Coq or uh, other dependent type languages is that you can use an SMT, you know proofs done by an SMT solver or proofs done they they can be done by an SMT solver, but they can be done by any other means too, by a tactic or whatever. You can use them to implicitly convert types everywhere. That's the main thing. Like you know, you can you know, if if I have a a you know a vector of who, uh, whose length is n plus n, I can implicitly treat it as a vector of length n plus n because of course n plus n is equal to n plus n, and you know an SMT solver will tell me that instantly. But in in in, in an intentional type theory, if you want to do this simple manipulation of converting these two types from one to the other, there's a lot of well, Joey, you're smiling because you've probably had to confront this kind of thing before because it's kind of a mess. I mean, to, to do these, these what seem like obvious conversions is a bunch of bureaucracy in an intentional type theory. You have to explicitly con- have these equality witnessing conversions and things like this. And, and, and these things just go away in an, in an extensional type theory and maybe makes it more amenable for me to just call an SMT solver at this point to just decide if n plus m equals n plus m and just be done with it without having to, you know, mangle my program. Gotcha. So it's not necessarily impossible in this uh, intentional setting, but it, it's quite a bit easier, I guess. Yeah. Um, yeah. In the extensional setting, to just uh, take what the take what the solver says and kind of go with it, um, and yeah, not have to do quite so much bookkeeping around you know, what it, why is the why is what the solver says correct? How do I propagate it through my um, terms and things like that? Um, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, one of the one of the great things about being a podcast host is that when I I'm out of my depth or don't understand something, I can move us on. So here is, is me moving us on <laughs> to another topic. <laughs> Thank you. But jokes jokes aside, um, pseudo jokes aside, uh, the the. I, I want to see if so there's probably a lot of people listening who do work on their own languages or they're doing research and uh, trying a few new things with maybe toy languages that one one day one day might become might get a larger user base um i'm wondering if we can talk about how you think especially since if, if star is getting some use about how you think about how do you evaluate language design from the lens of is it useful and will people use it um or if you have thoughts there to share, yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I I have some thoughts. I I don't 
my thoughts aren't necessarily, you know, uh, I don't have any sort of deep pearls of wisdom here. It, um, it's, uh, but I think one thing I can say uh, is is that you know somehow co-evolving your language design with a problem that you really want to solve is really important, so that you you're not just you know yeah you're not just building something. Uh, that that you can't keep evaluating. You need to be able to evaluate what you're doing, like every day. You know, is this actually helping somebody mm-hmm. solve some problem? You know, that often means pairing up with some domain expert because sometimes, you know, as a as a language designer, you you know, you can sort of. For many of us, I think we're the, just the the aesthetics of some of, of of you know lambda calculus and all this can 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 be quite alluring and you just kind of go off and design something because like it's beautiful or something mm. and and that's 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 fine and, and it's fun uh, but I think finding a way to sort of pair up with a domain expert from from some other domain who's really trying to solve some problem whether it's you know whether it's doing math at, or whether it, you know that, I, that for instance in the lean community that's been a, a big driver I think I think for Fstar that driver has been a, a lot about you know um, has been cryptography and you know people uh, who are interested in or sort of implementers of of cryptography not you know not necessarily cryptographers as such but you people who want to build efficient implementations of crypto protocols or or crypto primitives so I think finding a way to you know and that that sort of cycle has been I think really helpful for Fstar you know there's it, uh, we propose some, you know, some new way of doing proofs, and immediately, you know, our friends at Inria or CMU will will try it and um, and tell us, you know, if if it makes sense or not, and we'll iterate. Uh, so I think, you know, and this is not a by no means is it like a huge user community. It's maybe we're talking, you know, this kind of the the, the Close circle of people who repeatedly give us feedback on on new language features is, is something like you know maybe fifty people nothing nothing crazy right but uh, but that but even that is enough I think to keep you honest in, in your language mm-hmm. when we interviewed Alistair Reed he had this well I guess he had a paper called it but I, I like the idea as well as kind of the idea of meeting developers where they are um, and that's really I think that's kind of what DSLs are, are all about to some extent is like we have this language it can express anything in the world you can write any program in the world with it and say anything you can express right. in a logic about it right um, yeah. and that's great and that you know that'll get you a, a popple paper or maybe an ICFP paper um, but that's not enough to of course get somebody um, get somebody using it and and the idea they were all about is like we need to minimize the time between when someone, starts using this thing and when they see some some sort of good results basically um and so yeah dsls are a way of of bringing that time way down and minimizing um minimizing the things they need to learn i guess um have you done areas other than um other than cryptography where you've seen success is it possible to layer up different sort of dsls on top of fstar yeah so you know one of the things that we're looking at well it's sort of systems programming but systems programming that you with with concurrency and uh that you can sort of prove correct in a separation logic, which is you know, a way to write imperative programs, concurrent programs in Fstar and reason about them in this in this separate in this thing called the separation logic. A separation logic is it's an active area of research in in, in the PL community, in the PL program and program verification community. And it's a way to sort of structure proofs that uh, 
that are that's more modular, if I were to just put it in a, in a nutshell, and are uh, things that we you know are, are from a purely sort of language design perspective, uh, we we started to look into this seriously maybe uh, after our experience trying to do proofs in for crypto protocols and so on in a framework that didn't have separation logic and. We were able to get things done, and we have a large code base that's done without separation logic, and all this these, this code that's deployed in various places doesn't use separation logic. But we noticed that our proofs are way harder and let, hard to maintain because they lack this kind of modularity. So we've been looking at, you know, so motivated by that sort of, you know, empirical observation that we have this code base, it's kind of many hard-fought victories. How can we make it a little simpler, maybe by enhancing uh, the logic in which we work? Uh, and so, so that, that's something we've been looking at recently and, and using it to do things like, you know, it's, it's building on, on what we've done with crypto and, um, and, and also parsers and so on. But it's trying to apply some of these ideas in um, what we have a, a project where we're trying to use this to do things like... Uh, high assurance monitoring of cloud services like can can you write a can you write a monitor for a service that's going to observe the interactions that a client has with that service and you know uh, in and provide some guarantees about that interaction cryptographic guarantees about that interaction where for instance if the uh, if we notice that uh, the server is responding in a way that's incompatible with the trace of messages that have that the server has seen so far then we except for uh, some uh, small probability of you breaking a cryptographic hash or something our monitor will will notice this and 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 signal an error you know sig- signal that you know the service has deviated from expected behavior so things like this so it's um, so still you know there's still some cryptographic components to it but sort of moving beyond just crypto primitives or protocols yeah that's i guess that's one of my that's sort of one of my favorite uses of of formal methods, maybe almost ever, I guess, is like the state machine work you all did with um, with TLS, where you did about the same thing. You made a verified implementation, and maybe it wasn't quite high performance enough, or there were some other demands that it wasn't quite meeting to to run in production. But what you all were able to do is um, know exactly what a perfect TLS conversation looks like because you made a verified implementation, and then just have a bunch of TLS conversations. And whenever the whenever the other side messed up, you said, "Ah, they messed up." And you, you all found like a lot of serious uh, TLS implementation bugs um, in systems that are running in production, which was, a, I think, a really cool result and a really way to, really great way to make um, a lot of formal verification sort of directly useful to, to production systems, basically, even if people weren't kind of ready to, to use the, the verified thing yet. Yeah, that, uh, that's really cool work. It's, I wish I could take credit for it. It's not actually mine. Uh, it's work by my, my close colleagues and friends uh, uh, at MSR Cambridge and INRIA in Paris. It's uh, Antoine Delina, Lavo, Karthik Bhargava, and Cedric Fournay and others. Uh, but but yeah, that's really cool stuff. Um, they did do the verification in F-Star at least to some extent, right? So you can, uh, you can get second degree credit, I guess. Sure, sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but this sounds like the sim- a similar sort of application where, um, yeah, um, you know, but um, it, it is as nice as it is to deploy verified code directly. Um, the existence of verified code um, allows you to do a lot of different things, even even if people aren't ready to ready to run it right away. 
Yeah, I, I, although you know, so so yes, I, I second. I, I totally, I I, I I buy what you're saying, Joey. But I'm I'm kind of also, you know, I think, you know, we can get to a point where, you know, verified code is, uh, you know, is sort of has no excuses. Like it's it's fa- it's 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 correct. It's as fast. It's you know, uh, maybe you know, um, th- 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 there should be no reason for for you to to not deploy this in, in a production setting. I think we're getting there in uh, in several sort of. I mean, I think the main the main barrier is is it, you know, is the component that you're trying to verify is it high value enough? Like in terms of is a flaw in that component you know severe enough that that it warrants the investment of so much human expertise in, into producing this verified component producing and then maintaining it and so there are some places where this makes sense like you know if, if there's a i don't know uh, uh, a a bug in your deep in your in the virtualization stack that's isolating cloud tenants from each other then you know that's that's a bug that could cost billions and uh you know uh maybe in those situations it's worth uh you know strategically re- replacing some key component of that virtualization virtualization stack with a verified component and the same goes for cryptography um, and you know so there are these these i think these sort of select few areas where where the where the economics is beginning to make sense the other the other side of economics, I guess, that the people take into account here is um, if their team isn't the one that developed the code, but they need to maintain it, they need a they need a decent story there. Um, and one of the arguments, I guess, is you're less likely to need to maintain it because we're more likely to have gotten it right. Um, but sometimes that's not not sufficient. Um, I'm curious, you know, you all got those um, parsers deployed. Apparently, teams. Um, you know, like likely teams other than your teams um, and Microsoft are now sort of uh, responsible for those in some sense. And I'm I'm curious how that's I'm curious how that's gone and and what um you know what was convincing uh, in terms of you should use this code. Um, you're going to be able to maintain it, or we'll be able to help you maintain it. Um, yeah, I don't know how those conversations go. Right. Yeah, uh, I think the maintenance thing is a is a is a big one. Like, uh, and I mean, I think this this argument that it's verified, so the maintenance cost is lower. It's a bit facetious. I don't really buy it like this. You know, things change. Sure, the code is verified, but you're going to find that you know the your spec will change because you know, the needs of this component are going to change. Uh, um, and and then yeah, so so maintenance is a is a is a big issue. I think that you mentioned that us deploying these parses. You know, the answer again for us was like, I mean. It's the DSL thing again, you know. Uh, we're not going to, if it's just an arbitrary piece of F-star code that's going to be, you know, someone has to maintain. Then this is, if you're not an F-star expert, you know, uh, then that's that, or you don't have an F-star expert on your team, that's really that's a really hard sell. Uh, but if what you have is instead, you, you're uh, you're writing, you know, you write a, a format description in some C-like syntax. And the proofs happen automatically behind the scenes. Then uh, the maintenance story is is much easier. The, the the verification tool is just a tool in as as part of your 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 compiler workflow. You're not interacting with it directly, and so so that's a bit of an easier sell. Like you, uh, people as, who don't have to be you know uh, 
have star experts to to maintain and evolve this code. We we still work closely with the teams that use our code, and you know um, if the code has to be evolved, we're we're usually part of the code review to make sure that it's being done in a reasonable way. Things like this. The other context I think is is also you know in cases where where the component you're delivering has a very clear spec, like you you want to deliver a, an implementation of SHA or something, you know, and the, uh, there my colleagues who who do this have done this in, in many in many situations often deliver C code that comes out of the tool chain, and the C code is designed to be you know uh, we take a lot of pains to uh, make it um, uh, look pretty and human readable and so on. Uh, my colleague Jonathan Pratsenko is, is um, he's he's responsible for a lot of this, like building a, a tool that emits clean-looking C code from FSTAR. Yeah, that's maybe another way. You deliver the artifact, and maybe if things are stable enough, like you don't expect the spec to change, it's kind of primitive, then, then the maintenance question becomes easier as well. Right. Um, but if yeah, if you deliver reasonable-looking C code, the, the worst case for that team is that you all disappear. No one knows how to maintain it. And they've still got a good piece of code right. that was verified at one point, and that's a, uh, and that's it's not the result we sort of dream of, but it's it's a good result still. Right. Um, if uh, people want to give F, F star a shot, where should they start? Um, Fstarlang.org. There's um, uh, we have an online tutorial. Um, I actually just uh, pushed a bunch of new chapters there last week. Uh, so there's. Uh, I think what's up there right now, like if you wanted to learn how to write purely functional programs in FSTAR and prove them correct, I think there's a bunch of material up there that can help you get started. Um, I think doing things that are, we also have tutorials up there that sort of help you write, uh, say, C-like programs in FSTAR and uh, prove them correct and get C code out of it um, in uh, in this subset of FSTAR that we call LowStar. But these things, these, this, I have to say, it gets substantially harder. Like if you're writing pure F-star programs, things are, things can be kind of straightforward. Yeah, they can be, yeah, straightforward. Or maybe, maybe even if not straightforward, it can be kind of pleasant and elegant, mm -hmm. you know, if you set it up right. But as you try to do fancier things with, you know, efficient low-level code and proofs about them, things, things are still hard. I would say. Sure, that seems to be the case with with most with most uh, languages that are. A little bit on the cutting edge like that. So relating to having it be a little harder to prove the sort of low-level imperative programs, one of the things we find in our tools a lot is um, one of the hardest parts of tool development is is what you do when the person doing the proof is is stuck. Um, so you know when we talk about tutorials, it's it's kind of nice because you go through and there's the answer and you know it's going to work. Um, where, where we spend most of the time in our proofs is when it doesn't work and we have to figure out what to do next. Um, is that something you've put some work into in F-Star and, and making that story uh, reasonable for your users? Yeah, that's a great question. I wish, we, I mean, uh, put some thought into it, but there's so much more to do. And I mean, I think that's kind of the, the also the, the sort of the double-edged sword of having, you know, lots of SMT-based automation. You know, you... You're, you're trying to get this automated theorem, theorem prover to solve undecidable problems, and it's not. Sometimes it's just not going to do it. And then you know, how do you if a proof fails? How do you explain to a user why it failed and 
how to nudge the user from where they are towards a proof that that may succeed. And I think we, you know, we this is a we should FSR is not particularly good at this. I should be frank about it. Like we will try to get an error message out of the SMT solver and tell you, oh, we failed to prove this particular property about your, this this conjunct in your formula that you tried to prove here. Well, you were not able to prove it. And that's it. And, you know, we don't... And, and sometimes if the SMT solver just times out, it may not even tell you why, it, you know, which part of the formula it was working on when it timed out. And so sometimes we'll say, well, here's this chunk of code, you know, we were trying to prove all these things in it, but we could, we can't really zero in on like exactly which part of it failed. So I think this kind of di- diagnosis of proof failures is it's it's a big thing that we that there's lots more that we should be doing here that, that we aren't. So so usually this 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 often involves like um, you know you once you gain some experience with the tool, you kind of get a sense of like you know that the solver is. And, and you know all, all the other things FSR is doing. The SM, it's not just the SMT solver. It's also you know how does the unifier work and how you know when does when is it going to be able to prove things by you know symbolic execution and you know uh, things like this. You get a sense of like all these. You have all these proof tools available to you, and you kind of know which work well in which situations. And when a proof fails, you say, "All right, well, you know, I know I'm trying to do a proof here about modular arithmetic." And I know the solver isn't great at doing the SMT solver isn't great at doing that. So I'm going to, you know, for this part of my proof, I'm going to resort to some other technique, uh, maybe you know, uh, um, use some, a library of lemmas that we have around that are going to tell you specific facts about modular arithmetic and do proofs that way. Uh, or maybe at that point you realize that hey, I should just abstract away a lot of these details. Like I, I I'm, I'm not actually, I don't really care to be reasoning about. You know, modular arithmetic in, in integers. I just care about. I can just work in a, some much more abstract setting, and my proofs become simpler. And then I can just instantiate it to my the specific setting I have in mind. So, so I think people learn as in as in most tools. I guess you learn sort of your way around. You know, and um, how to how to navigate uh, complex proofs. Right, and the and the question I think is really how do we how do we get the the tools to provide a little more of that rather than um, having humans need to rely on, on instinct so much. But that was definitely, well, that was definitely a tricky question. Cause I think, I think in my opinion, no one's doing this very well. Um, so, you know, I would have been really excited if you were like, yeah, we know the answer and you all can, can copy it. Cause I don't think we're doing great at it. I think, um, you know, people, I guess are referring to some of these tools as sort of the auto active uh, verification tools. And I, and I don't know if anybody in, in that space has a great answer to this question of like, how do we, how do we bridge the gap and like switch over from, switch over from the SMT solver failing to the proof, uh, the person doing the proof, like getting some useful information out of that and go back and forth in a, in a good way. But it's a, it's definitely a really exciting question. I think that a lot of people are struggling with right now. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a really important question. It's also the sort of thing where the incentives in, the academic community are not, less, or at least in the, the core PL community, maybe not structured well, you know, that well for exploring these kinds of questions because there's no hard, there's no clear answer, there's no theorem you can prove about this. It's uh, it, you know, the, you need usability studies and things like this. Where you try to extract as much information as you can from the solver and present it to the user in some useful way. Like this problem is super un- underspecified, right? And you just have to. Uh, 
I think here's where you kind of have to sit in a very tight loop with 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 your your users and, and you know uh, figure out if what what you're doing is uh, is helping or not. Uh, but it's a it's I think yeah it's a it's a really important space and it's kind of wide open. Cool. Well, I think we'll leave our listeners with that as a as a question to ponder and to you know to reach out when they when they have the tool that is that has solved this once and for all. Um, but yeah, yeah, definitely the definitely how to get the incentives right is a challenge in this in this space as well as the the problem itself. But this has been a this has been a wonderful episode. Uh, thanks so much for for joining us, Nick. Thank you. Yeah, uh, thanks, Joey. Thanks, Scott. Was had a really good time too. Glad to hear. This was another episode of Building Better Systems. Join us again next time.